Hello and welcome to the third series of the Igniting Change podcast. It's a different and more challenging world in which we find ourselves this time around, so we wanted to reflect the challenges of just surviving in the COVID-19 era and what the Black Lives Matter movement has meant to some of our First Nations people. Igniting Change hasn't stopped working to make this period easier for those doing it tough, nor will it. Yes, we're all in this together, but for some, making it to the other side is just the start of the battle. Our guest today is William Tilmouth, the chair of Children's Ground and a proud Aranda man. Hi, William. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, and you? I'm good, thank you. I want to start today by asking you about the effect of the current pandemic up there in the central Australian area. It's extreme caution um, in the way that we do things, and we've had to adjust the way we do things in regards to especially the old people who are our history our storytellers and our professors in in what we're trying to do. So what have you done? What sort of steps have you taken? Well, we do, uh, you know, people going back out to communities as opposed to staying in town because uh, the isolation of outstations is far better than being in town with a whole heap of people. But the trouble is with outstations is that many of them don't have running water. Many of them don't have uh, electricity or anything like that. It's a failure by... uh, powers that be in resourcing those places. But the danger of staying in town is you have overcrowding and all that. So we've done a lot of negotiating with families on where they want to be. I know that this is a resilient group of people, William, but how the heck do they cope without water, without access to food? It's a pretty extraordinary situation to be in. Well, we do food runs and we also uh, take water out there via the resource agency that has responsibility for them, which is in Gerica. It's an outstation resource centre, but it's totally under-resourced in regards to people and their living conditions. I know a lot of older First Nations people suffer from diabetes. How do they manage that condition when they're not living in their normal residence? Trachoma is another one. I mean, if you don't have running water or the ability to wash yourself and your clothes or your hands, um, the spread of trachoma is just as dangerous as the spread of COVID. There's also rheumatic heart disease, which is epidemic up here as well. A lot of these things are very much have an environmental health factor that contributes to them. And and therein lies a big problem, a systemic problem within the way governments deal with Indigenous people who choose to live on country. So how do you view what's happening in the the southern states, particularly where I am in Melbourne at the moment? We are now in stage four. We have curfews, we have lockdowns. I guess some of that's just not new to you. It's not new to us, even though um, early in the peace, the Territory Government uh, closed the borders, which I think was a good move. But at the end of the day, it's there's still people coming in through the border un- unannounced and sometimes not scrutinised and um, have not gone into quarantine. So we still have our problems and sad to say that this sort of behaviour just will decimate a lot of our families if it ever become entrenched in the Indigenous society, taking in mind all those coexisting problems that they do have. So far, have there been any cases of coronavirus within the communities? Fingers crossed, no. Well, that's that's a, that's a real plus, isn't it? It's an interesting and very strange time. Are there any sort of interpretations on this event from the dreaming, from the sorts of discussions of what's happening to the earth? History will tell you that, I mean, because of the remoteness first and foremostly of such a large country, 
and learning to live within that country. Indigenous people, Aboriginal people, First Nations people never lived in town village-like situations. They were always on the move. They were nomadic. And as a result, they, they lived in small groups that were sustainable. They didn't live in large clan groups. They were all related to a large clan group, but they lived in their own identified part of the country that is totally related to their skin group and only came together in uh, ceremonial times. So, you know, the social distancing was practiced as a way of life. The land could not sustain large groups of people as such. And as a result of that, you lived a very nomadic life and you lived in small clans as opposed to cities and villages. Given that we believe that this disease has come via animals, do you think that the way that Western society treats and eats animals may have a part to play in what's happened and, and that perhaps the First Nations people do have something to teach us about the way we eat and forage and kill our, our animals? I think totally in regards to how we treat nature first and foremost. Mostly. I mean, to survive the distance that a lot of First Nations people in Australia have survived in that regard, I mean, you had to live as one with nature. You belong to each other. And today we uh, don't see it that way in a modern industrial world. You know, it's more about taking what we can from nature and, um, yeah, nature will hit back. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? To move on to the other major event that's taken place over the past months, and that is the, the Black Lives Movement, what was your reaction when you saw that beginning to bubble up both overseas and also here in Australia? Well, surprisingly, it took um, the death in America of uh, George Floyd to spark this up. But, you know, as you can recall, in Australia, we had numerous, numerous uh, royal commissions, deaths in custody, the bringing in a home report, all those things that was done ad nauseum, and yet it never took hold as, as it did in America. Why have we as a nation been so slow to react to this outrageous situation? Well, per population, the amount of deaths in custody of First Nations people in Australia, it's way out of proportion in regards to the small, minute population. I think we make up 2% of the population in and around that percentage. And the high rate of incarceration, the uh, high rate of failed policies and you know, education and early childhood and you know, life expectancy, there's a lot of problems that is endemic in such a small population. And and yet it continues, you know, and I, I think that it's hard to understand why Australia hasn't taken notice. Do you think they're taking notice now? I think there's a, a shift towards that, but we've always um, been dictated to and prescribed solutions to the way we do things. And one of the things about Children's Ground is we're going to take agency and we are going to educate our children the way that can be a lot better than what has been prescribed to us for years. And that is to have children with a foundation in identity, culture, language and land and family, as well as the ability to walk in a Western world. And I think that's one of the policies that never ever got looked at in terms of the Stalin generation. Uh, it was taking children away from family, country, culture, language, identity, and fragmenting the, the foundation that those children already had. 
those children never ever recovered. You, of course, were one of the stolen generation. Do you think they hoped that that if they took you away and brainwashed you effectively, that you'd forget and then you'd move on and be a part of the white community of Australia and eventually everyone would be assimilated? It was a total um, assimilation to erase from you your, your memory, your identity, your language and your family. I grew up on, on Croker Island Mission. I was taken from Malice Springs. I came from a family of eight. Five of us of my family were from a non-Indigenous father and uh, were very fair. And they were sent south to Adelaide because it was believed that they could assimilate a lot easier. They could pass for white. Yeah, they could pass as white. And the dark ones were sent north. Three of us were sent north to Croker Island Mission where we had nothing but assimilation. We had no contact with family. We weren't allowed to speak any language, even if we knew any. But, you know, we had faint words that, you know, were, were quite wrong. But we knew some words that the meaning had got lost to, but we never really spoke it, you know. And that connection was just smashed and taken away from us. We then moved to Darwin where slowly people started identifying us because of the surname. When people would say, oh, you, you, you're a Tillmouth and you're Alice Springs and slowly the connection got back. Oh, I live in Alice Springs. I must come from Alice Springs. So it took me 18 years to come back. William, that is just the most heartbreaking story. And it gets probably sadder every time that I hear it. And I'm so sorry for that. But what makes it a little better is for me to have seen the movie that you were an advisor on, which was In My Blood It Runs. And to see that young man, Duan, go through such a huge revolution of not fitting in to really fitting in to being able to live his full life as an Aboriginal boy. What was it like for you to be involved in the making of that movie? It was totally enjoyable because what was afforded to the parents of Duan and the grandparents of Duan, I wish was afforded to me when I was young. My uh, parents and my aunties and they had no choice in the decisions that were made for us. Uh, in this case, I'm very glad that you could see that Aboriginal people do care for their children and the copious amounts of travelling around looking for him late at night, tracking him down, taking him home, telling him off and, and worrying like every parent should about him. Uh, he was right on the precipice of going to Dondale. You know, he came to a crossroads in his life and the one led to uh, Geneva and the other led to Dondale. And I'm very glad that the family stepped in and he ended up in Geneva. It's a very interesting, emotional, harrowing at times, but ultimately very satisfying documentary. What sort of effect do you think it's been having? I think it's made a lot of Australians look at this. I mean, but not every Aboriginal child has that answer or that solution. I mean, it so happens that Duane's grandparents up in Borroloola had the amenities and the facilities and the wherewithal to take him in. And now his strength is that he has their language, their culture, as well as the language and culture from down here. And on top of that, being a Nunkari, I think he's healing people up in Borroloola now. His power is quite strong and his future looks a lot better than what it would if he had gone to Dondale. I think we probably all would like to see a follow-up documentary in the manner of the 7-Up films to watch what happens next with Duane. It's it's <laughs> going to be fascinating. Oh, he's such a character, isn't he? Totally. Do you think that because of the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement, because people around the world are beginning to look at what's happening here in a different light, 
Is there going to be a time, do you think, in your lifetime that the black lives will matter? I hope so. I sincerely hope so. But with interventions like with Dwayne, with the goodwill of people around the world, the change that we're trying to bring about in, in the way that children are better off with their families learning on country, learning identity, language and that. And, you know, hopefully that will empower people to take that step in the direction that they need to do in order to bring about that change. It's a long-term strategy. I mean, we're in it for the next 25 years with children. And right along the way, we you know, have kids of Duane's age and we have teenagers. We have like the band Blackrock. That mm. started with the children's ground and now they have a future. And hopefully the influence that we bring about can bring about the change that's needed, you know, breaking that cycle. William, thank you for all the work that you do, all the work that Children's Ground do. It's incredibly important and it's uplifting. We're very, very grateful to have you in our lives and we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for your time today and we'll talk to you again soon. Let me just thank Igniting Change. What they've done here is, is actually ignited change. They've got us thinking, they've got us going. It's a credit to you guys and your organisation, as well as Jane and the others, for you guys to make us, uh, give us the opportunity where historically we'd be struggling with government to even get a, a look in. So thank you and thank all of you. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.